Our scripture reading this morning will be from Ezra, chapter 10, verse 1. Ezra 10, verse 1. Now while Ezra was praying and while he was confessing, weeping and bowing down before the house of God, a very large assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him from Israel, for the people wept very bitterly. Do you remember when we used to have revivals? I mean, the two-week revival. The two-week revival kind of gave way to the three- or four-day gospel meeting, didn't it? We don't really have a two-week revival anymore. Now, that isn't necessarily a bad thing. Maybe the the gospel meeting, and it does have its place in uh, the church today, where maybe the two-week... Revival is not as uh, apt to bring us what we're looking for. I don't know. But that doesn't mean we do not need a revival. In fact, I've entitled the sermon this morning, It's Time for a Revival. That may not be the two-week kind, but nonetheless, the universal church, the world over, not just White Oak and And uh, I'm talking about the church all over the world. We need a revival. We need to do some things. I think we need to be revived and refreshed. I think we often need to be reminded of the, the goals which God has set forth for us to attain. I think we need to be reminded of the aspirations that we have as congregations throughout the world. I think we need to be reminded of those things. We need to be refreshed and we need to be motivated and we need to understand the direction in which we need to go. Sometimes we get a little bit lax in our works. That just happens in everyday life, in every aspect of our lives. Our work lives, sometimes we we back off just a little bit. We ebb and we flow in, in every aspect of our lives. So we need to be on guard, right? We need to... Watch what we're doing. We need to be in control. And sometimes we simply need to be nudged back in in the the correct path. We all remember that. We do that with our children. We allow them to to grow and to mature and and to make decisions on their own. And mom and dad are always there to kind of help nudge them along if they need a little direction. Well, God's done the same thing for us. Peter wanted to, revi- to uh, revive those of like precious faith, 2 Peter 1.1. 1, 1. They knew the truth. They were being faithful, but they needed to be reminded of a few things. They needed to be nudged. He wanted to make sure that they remained faithful, doing the things that God had asked them to do fulfilling the commandments for which Christ had died and given Himself in such a cruel, inhuman manner. I want us to notice what he said, Second Peter 3, beginning with verse 1. Peter said, This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, and of the commandments of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. See, there was nothing new. There was nothing new. There's nothing new. There are no original sermons. 
There are no original Bible classes. But we have to be reminded of those things that were in previous times spoken by the holy prophets of God. And I think that really is what a revival is, isn't it? We're reviving ourselves. It's a reminder of what we're doing. What's our goal? What's our plan? We better have one, hadn't we? And we do. We just sometimes have to be reminded. I think no greater example in the Bible of that very thing is Ezra. Ezra. The background to Ezra chapter 10 is the return from uh, Babylonian captivity. God had stirred up King Cyrus of Persia and he allowed the people to return and he made a proclamation, Ezra 1 verse 2, saying, The Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he hath charged me to build him an house at Jerusalem, which is Judah. And so... Understanding that, making that statement, Cyrus sent the people on. Now Zerubbabel was privileged to be the first one to lead a group of captivity back in order to rebuild the temple. Hadn't had one in some time. We see that in Ezra 2, verses 1 and 2. Nehemiah was the leader that took the third wave of people back. You recall they had built the temple, yet the walls were in disrepair. And it broke Nehemiah's heart and he begged the king, let me go repair the walls that surround God's city. But it was Ezra who led that second wave of people back to Jerusalem. By the time Ezra was chosen to to do God's work, it had been 58 years since the temple had been completed. And within that period of time, that 58 years, this idea of zeal and and a desire to build the temple had waned. And instead of zeal, what they found, what Ezra understood, was idolatry. He found sinfulness. He, He found apostasy and the princess report grieved Ezra to his heart. We learn... Ezra 9 verses 1 and 2, we learn the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands, doing according to their abominations, even of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites, for they have taken of their daughters for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy seed have mingled themselves with the people of those lands. Yea, the hand of the princes and rulers hath been chief in this trespass. Well, that's quite an indictment, isn't it? That great zeal for God to do what He wanted them to do to bring honor and glory back to the city of God had gone and it had retreated into that. And the leaders were the cause of it. So Ezra understood that the people needed a revival. They needed to be refocused on what they needed to be doing. Now there are congregations in the universal church who are just like this. They need to be refocused because they've gone off into apostasy. We have those in our own communities around us and we recognize that. 
But we have to have some kind of an application to this to the faithful as well, and there is one. The faithful have a desire to do what God wanted, and sometimes we just have to be reminded, encouraged just a little bit. Given an idea, have someone to say, hey, this is what you need to do, much like Ezra did. So he understood all of that. Now we're not given an abundant amount of information about the great servant of God, Ezra, but we have been told this, for Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord. But not just that, and to do it. And to teach in Israel statutes and judgments, Ezra 7, 10. Isn't that all we need to have a good old revival? To seek after the law of God and to do it? If we do that, we can't help but have a revival. We can't help but be successful. I think it all boils down to personal responsibility, saying, am I willing to do that? Will I do my part in having that good old revival? It's been said that the line between childhood and adulthood is crossed when you go from saying, it got lost, to I lost it. Personal responsibility, right? Being accountable, understanding and accepting the choices that we make in this life affects the circumstances in which we find ourselves. And sometimes those circumstances are not what we would like. But I believe when that happens, when we come to that understanding, that is a crucial point in the emotional and the moral maturity that each of us must have. After all, I think responsibility, and I know you agree, is one of the main pillars that we find in good character. And so when we have the character that we need and we have the desire to be responsible, I think we can have a have a good old revival and we'll be able to accomplish the things that we want to accomplish in the things God wants us to accomplish. I think many people have been seduced by what is known as the Peter Pan syndrome. Now, look, nobody wants to grow up. Nobody, no one in their right mind anyway, I don't think, wants to grow up. I think we want to enjoy the benefits of growing up. But who wants all that responsibility? Well, no one probably desires to have it and and wants to have to face the trials and the, the tasks of this life. But you know what? It is what it is. And we've grown into that stage, so we better embrace it. And then we come to find out pretty quickly it's not really as bad as perhaps I thought it was. When we do that, the benefits far outweigh not being responsible. I don't think that avoiding responsibility makes life better. I think it's exactly the opposite. When we avoid responsibility, we put ourselves into some kind of a self-imposed servitude. We allow the circumstances to dictate what we do in this life. I think responsibility is about our ability to respond to the things that happen in this life in a proper way. We sit around and we think about, we need the church to grow in this location. Yes, I agree with that. But then we have to do something about it, right? We have to seek the law of God and then to do it. 
It's not enough just to know, is it? Responsible people not only depend on themselves, they allow other people to understand they can depend on them also. And that's what we need. That produces trust, and trust is a key virtue when it comes to opening the doors of this life. If we want more control over our lives, if we want more control over the direction of our particular congregation, particularly, and the church in general, we have to be responsible. And then we'll have the freedoms that come along with that. Ezra knew the people had to come to that understanding. He saw what had been happening. Now their particular uh, context of life is not our particular context of life. When we look at the things happening in Ezra and we look in chapter 10, their dilemma is not our dilemma. But we can still make an application of how they handled that dilemma. They had gone into the to the nation surrounding them and had taken wives that they were not permitted to, to take and they had mingled, it says, the Holy Seed. They had produced children out of those unions and God didn't allow it. He said, you can't do that. So you're going to have to go back and you're going to have to start over. You're going to have to repent of what you've done and you're going to have to do right. Well, that's not our dilemma, is it? But the way they handled it is still the way to handle a dilemma. And our dilemma isn't something that is difficult like in Ezra 10. Our dilemma is simply a dilemma of refocusing. But that's the dilemma that all the church has. At all times, we are always continually needing to refocus and get our attention and and bypass the things of this life. Ezra understood the people needed to come to that knowledge. They needed to understand They needed to do something. They needed to do something so they could be what God needed them to be, and so do we. I'm not saying we're not what God needs us to be, but we can always readjust and refocus and pay attention maybe to other aspects that needs our attention as well. As we look at what Ezra did, and we look at what the people of Israel did, they had a revival, but I want us to notice this is our first point. It began with confession. Now someone says, but you said our dilemma is not their dilemma. Well, that's right. I think sometimes we we limit what confession really means. Oh, the people in Ezra 10 needed to confess sin in their lives. They they'd disobeyed God. They weren't doing it correctly. But that isn't all that confession entails. I think confession entails recognizing there is an issue. We need to own up to that. Well, we have an issue. We confess that we have an issue. We have to recognize that at times things get out of hand. We lose the handle on it. We're maybe not doing what we ought to do. We need to be nudged back in line, brought back into alignment with God's laws. After all, before an issue can be addressed, we have to understand there is an issue, right? And again, it's not something that we can't overcome. It's not something that we would deem that an unfaithful congregation would do. It's something that exists in the church universally and we need to focus on how to fix that. We must never become comfortable with where we are. 
We must never get used to that. There always has to be a desire to do more. You recall Mark 14, 9, the Lord said the, the gospel will be taken into all of the world and we read over a few books, Colossians 1, 23, and it had happened. But we can't stop. We still have to want to do more. We have to continue. You know about the, the great fellowship and the love that we have for each other? There are billions of people in the world that don't have that, that need it. There are thousands of people that go into eternity every day. In fact, at least 150,000 people go into eternity every single day not prepared to meet God. And their souls are worth it, aren't they? Of course they are. We understand that. Like Ezra, we need to understand there's a problem. It affects all people. And we need to address the problem. And so we recognize that. We have to see how the people reacted in our context too, though. Though their dilemma is not our dilemma. They confessed to sin because they recognized there was a problem and then they reacted accordingly. Notice what, it was, what was said. Ezra was weeping and so were the people because they came to the understanding, I haven't been doing what I need to do. They knew they had sinned against God. They needed to be revived and it started with that confession. But you can't just have that. And so we've got to make some kind of a modern day application, right? Again, their dilemma is not our dilemma. That has to be handled appropriately if that comes up. But the point is we need to react to the problems around us, whatever those problems are. What we want to do is be an evangelistic congregation we want to grow we want to reach out and it can happen but before we can have the kind of relationship with our community and that's what it takes we have to have a relationship we have to get to know people we have to in the words of Paul be all things to all men he didn't talk about changing the doctrine he's talking about making a connection but before we can have that kind of a relationship with people we have to have the correct relationship with God right and if there is an issue, maybe we're not having the kind of relationship that we ought to have. That doesn't mean we've, we've, we're sinful and we've gone off into apostasy, apostasy, but maybe it means we need to reassess where I'm standing in my relationship with God. And we better be building relationships with people. We never want to be like Israel during Ezra's day, just sitting there not doing what God expects us to do. We don't want that. We have to be a working congregation if we're going to get to heaven, and that's just a fact, right? We need to do that. God expects every congregation of His church, every single one in existence today to have a revival. This isn't a sermon about the White Oak Church of Christ. This is a sermon about the Church of Christ in general of which we're a part, right? And so we need a revival. And if we fail to recognize the areas in which that needs to happen, we can't have a proper reaction, right? So we have to understand that. We're preparing for a wonderful evangelistic effort in the coming weeks and months. I'm excited about that, and when we're able to uh, give the details of that. When we get that all put together, I think the congregation as a whole is going to be excited. We're going to reach out to those people around us and we're going to make an effort 
to impact our communities. And it is going to be wonderful. And I cannot wait for that. But we need to do that. We need to have a revival. And why is that necessary anyway? Why is that necessary? Because we were privileged with the information about Christ coming to earth, dying, giving Himself for us, and is it not worth it to allow the people of the world who have yet to understand that, and when I say the people of the world, I'm talking about, and that includes the people in our communities, right? I've been all the way around the world except for a little spot from southern Sumatra to southern India. But you know who also lives in the world? We do. Our communities. Chattanooga. The surrounding areas. That's part of the world. We need to focus on that also. And we're going to be able to do that. If a revival is going to take place, we first must confess that we recognize a problem. We have to react appropriately. But it has to go beyond that, right? We have to seek God's law and then do it and that requires having a covenant with God. That's our second point. Ezra and Shechaniah understood that they needed a covenant with God, but they also desired to have one. They made the necessary effort to have that covenant. Now those men knew the situation was urgent. They understand something or understood something needed to be done, and it needed their attention immediately. Now, of course. In this particular context, their covenant was a reestablishment of the covenant between the Jews and between God. We have to have a covenant. We have to be in a covenant relationship. Of course, we do that by, by obeying the gospel. We're in the Christian age. And so we obey the plan of salvation. We understand what that is. Faith and repentance, confession, immersion in water, faithful living. And so that's a covenant we have to be a part of. But you know, a covenant is sometimes... In addition to that, we can have a co- we can make a covenant with each other. Now, the covenant God makes with us as far as salvation is concerned is what it is. God chose that. Whether we agree with it or not, we have to abide by it. But we better have a covenant amongst each other as well. We have to agree to do what God's asked us to do if we're going to be successful. We need to make a covenant with God saying, I'm going to follow your law. I'm going to do those things. You know, Ezra and the people, they didn't wait for a better time, did they? There is no better time. There's only now. We have to do those things now that God asked us to do. Ezra or Isaiah declared, Isaiah 55, beginning with verse 6, he said, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him. And our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Sometimes we get distracted in this life. Look, that's common. We have a lot of responsibility and because we are responsible, we shoulder those requirements. We've got children, we've got grandchildren, we've got light bills, water bills, car payments, insurance payments, land taxes. We've got people pulling at our time and our attention and sometimes we let that overpower us and we forget about the goal, the thing that is most important and that's doing the will of God. 
Doing the will of God goes beyond obeying the gospel, becoming a Christian. We know how to do that. We've talked about that for years, haven't we? We've embedded that into our minds, and rightly so, we need to, so we can repeat it to other people. But we need to understand Christians have a job to do. You know, we look around and we say, and I say we, I'm talking about the church in general, well, we'd like to have a, a larger congregation. In fact, I went to an, uh, an evangelistic seminar yesterday over at Greens Lake Road. Do you know what I learned new? Nothing. But I was excited. I was motivated. It did make me refocus. It did get me kind of back on track. It made me have a good feeling about the plans we're putting together. It made me understand we can be successful. And I look forward to that. We can have greater numbers. That's not very difficult, really. Once we get over the initial roadblock of, of not focusing, you know, because we're not the only people in our neighborhoods who, who are interested in the gospel. There are others out there. That's why Jesus commanded, Go ye into all the world, therefore, teach all nations. Right? The Great Commission. We need to do that. We can have a desire, but if we're not directing ourselves or being directed, we're going to have trouble fulfilling that desire. That's what Ezra did. He directed, right? He, along with the leaders, they moved the people in the right direction. That's what we've got. That's what we have to do. We're able to do that. In the immediate context, again, their dilemma is not ours, but they were told to do something. You have to put away those ungodly wives you've got. Even though you've got children, they were in in marriages that God did not endorse. And that may seem a little harsh at first, but is it really any harsher than, than when John told the Pharisees and Sadducees, Matthew 3, 7 through 8, you're just a bunch of hypocrites and snakes. And if you want to get to heaven, you better change what you're doing. Now again, their dilemma is not ours. But he's saying, don't just feel bad about what you're doing. Feel bad enough to stop doing it. And so any congregation of the Lord's people that who wants to build up a congregation, we can't just feel bad about not having a larger congregation. We need to feel bad enough to, to do something about it, right? We see that in Ephesians 4, 28. Paul says, you know, if you're stealing, don't steal anymore. Feel bad enough to stop what you're doing. And what's to notice, too, that how Paul's statement in that of which the Israelites were doing in Ezra's day, how they, how they complement each other. Shechaniah put the desire into action, didn't he? He did something. He told the people, repent, get rid of your sins. What, what does the congregation need to do that wants to grow and get out into the community? All we have to do is grow and get out into the community. It'll happen. And that's what the church the world over has to do. As a whole, as the Lord's church, I think we need to stop looking at half-empty buildings. Everywhere. They don't have to be that way. But if they are, and the congregation is doing what it's supposed to be doing, that congregation is the size it ought to be. But let's still not sit around looking at half-empty buildings. Let's still be in the community, talking to people, letting them know where we are and what we're doing. Do you remember what Paul told Timothy? 1 Timothy 4.16, he said, Take heed unto thyself. And unto the doctrine continue in them. For in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. He didn't tell Timothy just be concerned with saving yourself. 
Be concerned with saving those that listen to you and hear you. What is the doctrine? Well, one aspect of that doctrine is to make other disciples. That's a commandment, brethren. That's not just a good idea. We've got to do it. But we have to have confession. We have to recognize. We have to react. We have to make a covenant. We have to have a desire. We have to be directed in what we're doing. And finally, none of that's going to do any good unless we carry out, this is our last point, the things that we've come to understand that we need to do. Where does it begin? Where does it begin? I don't care what kind of an organization, if it's a a religious organization, if it's a secular organization, if it's a civic organization, it all begins with the leaders. The leaders, right? You remember the plaque on Harry S. Truman's desk? The buck stops here. He didn't go beyond the president. He had to make the decision. He, he was responsible, right? The leadership is responsible. That's where it starts according to history, according to Ezra and, and Shechaniah and those men. How do leaders do that? They lead from the front, right? They lead from the front. Not just in in authority, which leaders have the authority, but also in example. When we ask someone to do something, we need to be out doing it if we're a leader in an organization, right? The leaders of Israel decided to do what was right. Now, they made some difficult choices in their dilemma. Ours is not so difficult. But we still have to bring forth fruits worthy, in their case, of repentance. We have to bring forth a demonstration of what we want to do. How do we translate that in today's world with our specific issues that we face in the church? If the church is going to grow, here's what has to happen. The elders or the men in leadership position, they have to be having Bible studies or helping someone to have Bible studies, searching for Bible studies, looking to make a relationship with someone, getting to know people. How are we ever going to convert someone if we don't know who our neighbors are? How are we going to convert anyone if we don't know who's living next to the church building? Well, that goes on down the line, right? If you have elders, and likely you'll have deacons, they need to be doing the same thing. If you just have a a men's meeting, then the men, the leaders, they have to be involved in that. The preacher has to be involved in it. Every single member has to be involved in We have to get on board with it. Let me tell you, it can be successful. And if you ever have success, you cannot wait till you have another one. And then you become obsessed with success. You want it. It is the best feeling in the world to have a Bible study with someone and then watch their eyes get bright when they come to the knowledge of what God has in store for them. And then you know what else happens? Then they go teach someone. And they go teach someone. And here in a minute, you're having to build new buildings. You're having to add on. You're having to take a group of people and start a a, a plant congregation somewhere else because now you're bursting at the seams. And you know what? That happens, and it can happen anywhere. We just simply have to do it. Now, not every person's talent is necessarily sitting down having a Bible study, right? But I can promise you one thing. If you call me and you say, I know someone who wants to have a Bible study and I'll go with you, I will go every single time. And we have other men here that will do that every single time. There is not an inconvenient time for me. 
when it comes to teaching the gospel to somebody. If we're not doing that, if the leaders aren't, what happens to the rest of the congregation? We'll become lazy, don't we? We just do what we, what we see is going on. Do you remember what happened when Josiah found the book of the law in the temple? Boy, he did something about it, didn't he? He did more than plan. He did more than feel bad because the people hadn't been obeying God. He reinstituted proper worship throughout the kingdom. He had action. He made some moves. We see the same result on that Pentecost sermon that, or in that Pentecost sermon we have recorded for us. Peter was preaching the gospel and we get to verse 37 and the people say, what, what do we need to do? That's what people want to know. They come to the understanding of what God has in store. They say, well, what do I need to do to affect that in my life? The expression, the road to hell is paid with good intentions comes from Dante's Divine Comedy. As Dante's guide took him and was allowing him to look in hell, as you read that on the wall was written all sorts of promises of individuals that had made those promises to do the right things, but they never got around to it. That's what happens a lot of the time, isn't it? And that is a reality. I think people feel good about obeying the gospel. Sometimes they don't get around to it. I think people feel good about restoring themselves to God uh, through whatever process that needs to happen. Sometimes Christians fall away. They become unfaithful. They need to repent of those things. Make that confession. They feel good about doing that and they know they need to do it, but sometimes they just don't get around to it. Sometimes we feel good about spreading the gospel and understanding what we need to do, but sometimes we just don't get around to it. That doesn't make us bad people. That doesn't make us terrible Christians. That just makes us people who need to refocus on what our plan is. And we can do that. We have an opportunity to have a revival. And we need one, but we have to choose to have it. Let me end with a little tale that was told of a football game between two rivals. One team was much larger than the other team and was just beating the other team up and down and running all over them. And, and it got down to the, to the fact that the coach on the losing team that had the smaller ones, he said, there's only one way we can get out of this. There's only one way that we can win. And they had a little back on their team who was small, but wasn't just the fastest back on his team. He was the fastest back on the field. He said, if we get the ball to this young man, and his name was Calhoun, we can win because if he ever breaks through, they'll never catch him. So it got down to the, to the final seconds and the coach put a plan together and he told the quarterback, he said, now you hand off to Calhoun. And so the play started and Calhoun didn't get the ball. He threw it away. Okay, the coach sent in a second signal. He said, give the ball to Calhoun. We're, we're one touchdown away from victory. The, the ball was snapped. Calhoun didn't get the ball. That happened a third time. And then a fourth time, he sent the signal in and the quarterback was sacked because he didn't hand it off to Calhoun. And so they get back to the sideline and the coach is upset and he says, I told you four different times, hand the ball off to Calhoun. Now why didn't you do it? 
The quarterback stood tall and he said, Coach, well, let me tell you, four times I called the play to give the ball to Calhoun and he didn't want the ball. We've got to want the ball, right? We've got to have a desire to do something. We have to be motivated to be successful, and we can be. And all we have to do is just give it a try. To be successful, let's take the ball and run with it. We can do it. We're going to have a plan for that. We're going to have people helping for that. And we're going to grow. We're going to tell people about what God has in mind for us and for them, and we'll be successful. If you have a need today to have a revival personally, if you need to come back to God because of unfaithfulness in some way in your life, do that. Repent of those sins. Make the confession, whether publicly or privately. We'll pray with you if you if you need to make a public confession. God will forgive you and we'll love you for it. If you've never obeyed the gospel, don't leave here not doing that. Be in a covenant relationship with God. Let that be known as we stand and as we sing.
Let us pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful unto Thee for this Lord's Day and the opportunity that we have to gather around this Lord's table to remember His death. May we partake of this loaf that would be pleasing in Thy sight. In Jesus' name, amen. Bow with me. Heavenly Father, we also ask thee to bless this cup, which to us as Christians represents the blood that was shed on that cross of Calvary. May we all partake of it in a worthy manner in Christ's name. Amen.
That concludes the Lord's Supper. We now have an opportunity to give back. Let us pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful unto thee for all the many blessings you bestow upon us. We pray, Father, that this offering be used, that we further the gospel in this area. Forgive us our sins, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Most gracious, loving Heavenly Father, we're thankful for this privilege, the opportunity that you have given each one of us to assemble together as your church, to worship you. It's our hope that all that has been said and done will have been well in accordance with the holy will, the holy word, and to have been found in spirit and truth. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for the lesson of this day. Help us to make the application to hearts and minds. Help us to turn to you for the strength and guidances we so earnestly need on a day-by-day basis. Heavenly Father, we're in all things and in all ways. We seek your approval and your approval only. And we call you Reverend and and your Reverend, your name only. Heavenly Father, as we have come to a conclusion of this hour, we ask that you'll give us each a safe journey into return. But these things we do ask in Christ's holy name. Amen.